One path, one choice, we win, or everyone dies. This is There and or Back Again, a special series by My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Normally, our adventures have us journeying across Middle-earth, but here we jump into hyperspace to a galaxy far, far away. There is one way out. Right now. The building is ours. You need to run, climb, kill. You need to help each other. You see someone who's confused, someone who's lost. Keep them moving until we put this place behind us. There are 5,000 of us. If we can fight half as hard as we've been working, we will be home in no time. One way out! One way out! One way out! I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is A Sunless Place, our look back at the first season of Andor. And our spoiler warning is, we will be spoiling everything in Andor that we have seen, and any knowledge we may have of the Star Wars universe to date. Between the two of us, we've consumed a lot of Star Wars books, (laughs) cartoons, comics, and games, so stuff will come out. So I have a book. Um, I do not have a book. I have a chapter in a book uh, that came out recently. It is called In One Woman's Life, and it is the story of uh, Dundonian communist icon Mary Brooksbank. Um, it was edited by Aaron Farley and Siobhan Toland, and it is available from Aberté Historical Society, which is our local historical society here in Dundee, um, for £7.50 online plus shipping, I think, if you're in the US. Um, and it is just the absolute joy of my life to, to get to... Um, put all of my research from my dissertation into a very, very short chapter uh, alongside some of the, just some of the most incredible women um, in in Scotland right now. Uh, It was a a real honor and something I'm very, very proud of. Uh, And it is also very, very cheap to buy as a book. Uh, So if uh, this will come after the Christmas rush, but if you have birthdays, uh, other things at which you should get gifts for coming up uh, in the next couple months, definitely buy this book. I promise you it will definitely entertain someone but importantly it will make me happy and i'm the most important person in the world so yes uh please buy the book on communist women (laughs) uh and emily is a fantastic writer uh as good as she is at podcasting she's equally good at writing so (laughs) um, i very much look forward to reading uh, her chapter and this book as a whole because it sounds very fascinating about stuff i don't really know that much about so should be great
So before we get into our deeper discussion today, we have some patron questions about Andor, and we're going to answer those first. So uh, our patron, Maddie, uh, asks, if you could remove one thing from Andor, uh, what would it be? And if you could add one character alive at the time of the story, who would that be? And yes, you have to answer both of these questions. So Emily, feel free to take either or both. Oh, it's really hard. Um, the second one I find even harder than the first because I, I like before the show started, I had about a million answers to that. And then after the show started, I was like, I don't know what I think anymore. Uh, and everything that I did think is wrong. Um, so the the thing I would remove, also very difficult. I guess the ending isn't really a, an option there. Um, I guess if I had to remove anything... Fuck. Um, uh, um, there's, there's really nothing. This is so awful. Um, I would remove the bit with the, the humanizing sequence with the little, in Aldani, there's the Aldani Comandante, and he's got his little son. Um, and it's the funny, one of the funniest interactions in the show, but it's quite humanizing where like the, he can't get his belt, the Comandante can't get his belt around his waist and his wife is dressing their like 10 year old son and he demands of the wife, come help me do this. And she's like, oh, I'm uh, dressing the kid. And he goes, and it's the funniest like kind of posh British con uh, approach. He's 10, he can dress himself. No sense of irony there. Um, it's I cracked up when it happened. It was very, very funny. But I guess if I had to remove one thing, it would be that because it kind of humanizes them. And I think that's bad. These people are are evil and not people, which is, of course, the total antithesis of this show. But I guess if I had to do one thing, that would be it. <laughs> I guess uh, you can tell that Emily has not seen House of the Dragon yet, which I'm going to very lightly spoil here because that little kid ends up killing a man that's much bigger than him <laughs> in House of the Dragon. Uh, so when he popped up in this show, it was like, oh, yeah, it's that fucking kid again. So... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Other than like the Death Star scene that's the post credits, oh, like duh, yes. nothing. Yeah. Uh, that's what I thought you meant when you said you can't get rid of the ending. Um, <laughs> because that's the only thing that I really found superfluous. Yeah. Because um, it feels like everything else is so finely tuned to what the show is. And honestly, even that Death Star sequence is pretty much in line with where this story is going. Uh, but it's the only thing that I'm like, yeah, I could drop this and not miss anything. Whereas everything else would just be like, I would, I would miss it. Um, I, it's really hard to, uh, pick something else like that. Um, Jesus. Yeah. Um, am I allowed to remove a character's shirt? Yes. Um, cause you know, they're like, I would remove Brasso's shirt in a heartbeat yeah. and just see that big hairy chest. I know he's got, <laughs> um, but I guess she, I guess Maddie's asking for one character, um, or no, she says one thing to remove. So that one's easy. The Death Star ending sequence yeah. for me is pretty much it. <laughs> um, okay, but if you have to get... Okay, so if you have one alive character. Yes, and it's character. One alive character. Who's your one alive character that you shoehorn in? So um, this is going to go against basically all my other Star Wars opinions. <laughs> but let's pretend like everyone who's ever been in a Star Wars is alive right now in terms of the actors. <laughs> um, and I would love to put Peter Cushing as Tarkin oh, into yeah. this. Um, we definitely get, uh, I think Eulerin does a nice job, the actor who comes in and plays him. He might even be the voice actor from the Clone Wars shows um, or not. the Rebels, whichever. Yeah. Um, but either which way, uh, I love Peter Cushing before Andor. It was easily my favorite performance in anything Star Wars. Mm -hmm. um, and that's obviously the same reason that he was brought into uh, 
Rogue One as a CGI monstrosity that I really did not like. Um, and I guess kind of along the lines, and I hope I'm not stealing your answer, um, I would absolutely welcome Ben Mendelsohn into this story as <laughs> yeah. well. Um, he, he, he can be here right away, and I would not feel like they're shoehorning in something from Star Wars because he's coming from the same place that um, Andor is in terms of this TV series. Yeah, yeah I think that's a really sound answer. Um, it was actually not, it, it was not my answer because I'm like, this 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 question feels like like monkey's paw bait like i feel like anything i say here optimistically could has the potential to go bad in, in a very serious way and i am actually kind of hoping that ben mendelson shows up for season two because he's so good and um, my answer is actually and this will mean absolutely nothing to you because you have not seen rebs and you should um but um Agent Callus, who is a uh, an ISB officer in in Rebels, uh, and who has, I would argue, possibly the most interesting character arc of um, any character in Star Wars. Quite possibly, um, it, it is certainly his story is the thing that makes me love Rebels as much as I do. Um, and I think he would be a fun, like not only would he be a fun addition to the story, he would also fit quite seamlessly into the story. Um, and and there wouldn't be like a tone clash. I, I was going back and watching bits and pieces of of Rebs um, over the last couple months, and and there are moments when Rebels really punches above its weight class in terms of like not just being a kid's show. I mean, it aired on fucking Disney XD, for God's sake. Like, that is an immediate knock on its kind of caliber. Um, but there are really moments when it punches far above that that sort of age demographic that it's meant to be targeting. Um, and and everything with Callus and, and everything with, like, the really kind of the 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 uh, gross interior of the, the empire, like the bureaucracy, that all, I think, kind of... It doesn't presage and or necessarily because it's not quite as sophisticated, but tonally, I think it gets there. Um, and it and it gets to where it is um, compatible with Andor, if not similar to Andor. Um, and I also think he's got some absolutely fucked up hair, and it would be very, very funny to try and see a uh, hairstylist make that thing work on uh, on live action TV. <laughs> yeah, even though I don't know who that is, that sounds like a fantastic answer and would slip right in. Um, it's almost hard not having seen, you know, those cartoons. Like all the characters I could think of otherwise are basically like Jedi's. Mm -hmm. um, I guess a lot of them are dead, but uh, it's like I don't really know who I'd pick that would really fit in at this point in the story. Um, if I had seen, say, Rebels or Clone Wars, there are probably a million names I could think of. But for me, it's a struggle without that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I also think it's like I feel like the the show has set up well we'll get into this later but like the show's cast as set out like cast of characters as set out is like both expansive and quite small and so it feels like anyone that i would have wanted either as like a specific named character or, I, or as like a character archetype is already there and and also all of mm -hmm. those characters and archetypes fit so tightly together i can't imagine shoehorning anyone else in because it would just feel like bulk almost i guess the other answer to this is i want felicity jones back as jenner so um however there are some age-related issues there that would make it dead funny for the discourse but absolutely heartbreaking as a shameless uh, rebel captain chipper so yeah uh, I do think uh, Mads uh, as oh. Galen Erso could be someone we do actually see in season two in some capacity. Yes. Um, so I would definitely uh, welcome that because he is a tremendous actor. 
Um, I'm going to do these questions out of order because uh, what you were saying about how any added character would feel like overlap with an existing character um, gets into my answer for this next question. So I'm going to ju jump over to uh, Rob Flom's question. Uh, his first one is, what's your favorite minor character? And two is, do you think any other major characters are going to be brought in for season two, which we've kind of talked about? But um, let's circle back to the first one. Uh, my favorite minor character, most of all, was Major Partagas, nice. um, who is played by Anton Lesser. He's nice. the head of the ISB, as we see it, um, the guy who was Kyburn in Game of Thrones. So you can guess why he was my favorite <laughs> answer. And that's kind of why I felt like I would love to have an alive Peter Cushing as uh, Tarkin in the show. But I get so much of that just from Partagas, yep. um, because he's not necessarily yelling at people, but he's still very sharp with them. Like he's able to dismiss them without necessarily like yelling in their face, like uh, General Hux or something. Yeah. Um, so uh, I really loved his performance, very understated. Um, and I love just the words he chooses, like thesis, please. <laughs> um, like every word that is chosen for that actor to say is perfect. I love how he plays the other ISB agents off each other. Mm -hmm. It's like, do you want your credibility ventilated <laughs> in front of a public audience? <laughs> Uh, it's really, really just a great use of that actor. Um, I think he instantly snaps this show's version of the Empire into place for me. Yeah. Um, because he really is the first Imperial we see. Yeah. Um, we're mostly dealing with the Corpos until we get to episode four. And then he kind of shows us exactly what the Imperial mindset is at this moment in time. So I think he's my favorite minor character. Um, I have a second one I'll get to in a second, but I want to give you a chance to get in here. Um, so so this is where I have the worst answer of all time, which is there are no minor characters in this show, so, so none of them. Um, and I was going to pick Nemec, but he is obviously the star of this show. Uh, I don't know who the fuck Cash and Andor is. It's 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 Karis Nemec is the hero of the show. Um, no, but it is, it is, <laughs> of course it is, because I'm a parody of myself at this point. It's the little Iron Bruhan, uh, Linus Mosk. Um, and, mm. and like Star Wars has no lack of like villains and villainous and cretinous type characters, but like his is such a specific, like, like for, for me, right. So Star Wars as a, as a movie or as a series has always been really tied up in, with Britain. Um, like, you know, there's a reason why George Lucas came to film it all in Britain, um, and in England specifically. Um, and, and, you know, you, you get the kind of the greats of the more niche parts of, uh, British cinema history, like, uh, Peter Cushing, you know, who, who really until that point was, was, you know, he was known as a, as a sort of a stately figure of the industry, but he was known for Hammer Horror, which was campy and sort mm -hmm. of not not the thing. Um, and then you've got you know the giants like Alec Guinness and 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 Star Wars and Britishness have always kind of gone together. But Star Wars has never really played with British character archetypes ever. Um, and Linus Mosk is you know the the guy the actor who plays him is best known for his run. I'm pretty sure it's Corey. Uh, yeah, Corey. I think it's Corey. Or it's either Corey or EastEnders, which is one of these, you know, 40 season long, long running um, uh, soap operas, British soap operas. But he he was, he played the worst villain the show ever had. And and there is this kind of space for like these, you know, these these working class, these deeply evil working class men. Uh, and and Linus Mosk shows up and is the first time we really get to see that played with um, in, in Star Wars. And, and of course, it's just, you know, he's the first guy in Star Wars to say shit. And he 
shows up and and he's just this kind of battering ram of uh, like of a culture that had not existed in Star Wars canonically until this moment but suddenly there is um space Glasgow uh threatening in the distance of of all Star Wars movies now and there is always this threat that a fucking angry Ouija Hun will show up and yell at you and uh Linus Mosk is the 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 Moses parting the Red Sea of American character archetypes that brings that to us and and he is my forever my favorite now <laughs> yeah he is absolutely great uh the moment where he raises his hand when he's being uh, yelled at by blevin <laughs> yeah. is still like the funniest moment the entire series for me uh <laughs> i also want to give a quick shout out to uh vanis tigo or captain tigo um who is kind of the chief of the El- uh, Ferrix Garrison after uh, Andor and Luthen make their escape in episode three. Um, he's a very minor character um, played by Wolf Scolding, but he's just like perfect because he gets this assignment on Ferrix. And then when Blevins comes to tell him, you know, what the deal is, <laughs> is the hotel going to make a good, uh, you know, workstation for you? And he's like, can I have the title of prefect, please? <laughs> um, like, and then uh, he's the one who wants to hang Salman Pack just as to make an example of him. Um, he's also the imperial that says fire at will, open fire during Marva's funeral. Mm. Like, he's the one who orders them to open fire, not Dedra or any of the other people present. Um, so, and obviously, I don't like that he does these things, but it just perfectly captures how he's a little shit. Yeah. Um, just like he's absolutely someone who's just there to climb the ladder. He wants the fancy titles. Um, he probably wants an extra cape on his like imperial outfit <laughs> so he can be fancier. Um, and I really love that he's the one who sees the stormtrooper get kicked out of the bell tower by the time mm-hmm. grappler. Um, like he sees it, he's like, fuck, is this good? Um, it just. I, I think he's just a really small part. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people couldn't tell which character I'm talking yeah. about. Um, but even so, I think he he does it wonderfully. Uh, so I want to give him a little shout out because I don't think we'll talk about him in any real context ever. Um, but I think he's fantastic in that little role. Yeah. Well, I think this is the real problem with this show is that like every single and again we'll just have to get back into this later but like every single character has so much weight and there's just not like there is no human way to talk about every single character with the like due interest and reverence that they all deserve because there's just not there are just not enough hours in the day but like it like like it's true that there is a distinction between like major character or like lead actors supporting actors and uh i can't remember what they call it shit i can only remember the theater one anyways there's like you know there's tears for how many lines you get or how much screen time you get until mm-hmm. you qualify as each of these things but like none of these characters in and or feel like walk-ons they all have this like real weight and gravity um to who they are and like there are so many of them like tigo like like um like wilman pack like um like fucking even pegla's dogs you know what i mean his like weird space dogs mm-hmm. uh yojimbo throwback space dogs like they all have this like real kind of gravitational pull on the narrative and we will never have enough time to talk about them but they're all they're all really Im- impressive in, in their own ways <laughs> Yeah, I think on rewatch, one of the things that really stood out, and this is very common for well-written ensemble cast shows, is that a lot of these smaller characters like Tigo or Lonnie 
or Wilmot Park. Like they're there, like all through the series. Mm-hmm. Um, but we kind of, you know, their bigger moments are near the end, so they kind of feel like they're a smaller character that's blowing up. But they're very well seated and have these little moments throughout the season that you know perfectly build up to their bigger moments. Like Nurchi, I thought he was only in the first and last episodes, but no, he's in a couple of the middle episodes mm-hmm. too. Um, and it perfectly, like what he's doing in those episodes fits in with him being kind of the one who sells Cass out, um, which, you know, it's just the sign of good, good television making and a detail oriented approach to the characters. Yeah. 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 Um, so the second part of the question, I know there's major overlap with uh, Maddie's question, but do you think any other major Star Wars characters do get brought into this as opposed to like what you want to see? Um, do you think any of the other big ones will be in season two? And if so, is which one? <laughs> um, so when this show was announced way back when, um, and then when they really started talking about it, it being filmed in earnest and, and starting to do the kind of baby press for it. I don't know however many years ago. I kind of like Mia culpa. I had my nose kind of bent out of shape because Alan Tudyk as K2SO wasn't in it. And I took that as a sign. And again, this shows how, how little I know. But I was like, oh, they fucked it already. It's just totally ruined. Like, like what is Rogue One without K2? Um, and and how how could they possibly make the show without Alan Tudyk? And the answer is very well. Um, but I suspect they're going to have to get K2. Well, not I suspect. They're going to have to get K2 in because they say they go literally up until the moment in which Cashin shows up in Rogue One. Um, that is like the last bit of the last episode of the show. So Alan Tudyk has to come. I feel like that's kind of a cheat um but i actually think like I, it's not even a hope for me so much as like i would i genuinely think they will probably bring mads mickelson back um and maybe that's just me like being over optimistic but i feel like man he's getting shunted onto a whole bunch of dumb useless franchise projects now like he basically is cast whenever a franchise is and it's like dying gasp uh he's there for the death rattle and and i think like he is at as capable and competent as an actor as any actor and i think he deserves a second shot at star wars not that he wasn't brilliant in rogue one he was very good at rogue in rogue one but like i think he deserves the kind of good writing that tony gilroy brings to uh to andor and i would love to see him and i think there is a lot of value in um now reorienting the season two towards this question of the weapons and, and imperial weaponry and to have a sort of prong of that story be Mads Mikkelsen and Galen Erso, I think would be a, a good way of going from here. Yeah, absolutely. And I would love to see Tony Gilroy, right? Uh, two handers between Mads and Ben Mendelsohn. Um, I think bringing both of them back, I think would very much fit in with the story. Um, and I, I think it's very likely we at least see them. Um, I would love for them to be major parts of the cast, but I honestly don't know um, at this point, especially because they're going to be spanning such a length of time. Um, but we do know that uh, Galen Erso is working on the Death Star, and I forget Ben Mendelsohn's character's name, uh, but I know, and he would be overseeing it. So it's very organic to bring them in as opposed to just glup shittoing it, <laughs> where it's just like some guy shows up because people in the fandom know who they are. It is actually somewhat relevant to the story. Um, I don't can't really name any other major characters. Um, I could do without Bail Organa. Yep. Um, that's Please mostly God. for Jimmy Smith's sake because he is looking his age these days. <laughs> um, he kind of looked like he was dying on the set of Kenobi, but to be fair, I'm sure that <laughs> set was cursed as is. Um, so I don't have a major character answer, but um, General Dodana, who nice. uh, most people just know from A New Hope, he's the one who kind of gives the briefing before the Death Star trench run. 
Um, he was recast in Rogue One by Ian McElhenney, yeah. who played Barristan Selmy in Game of Thrones. Haha. <laughs> um, I could definitely see him, or I would like to see him possibly come back, especially if we get into the real formation of the Rebellion as like a military unit. Um, I think he's a really tremendous actor. Um, he feels he kind of got the short shrift from Game of Thrones because they killed his character off way before he actually dies in the books. Um, so giving him like a rebirth in the Star Wars universe with actually good material, um, I think he would be great with it. So I'd love to see him come back. Yeah, it's so funny. You're right. Like, obviously, you're right. He is in Game of Thrones. But it, for me, whenever I see him show up in Rogue One, I'm like, oh, it's Grandpa Joe from uh, from Dairy Girls. And yeah, he is. He is. He is Game of Thrones first and foremost, but that's, it's funny. It took me a minute to process there who the fuck you were talking about. Um, and then our last patron question is from DJ Empirical, our sound editor, Steven. Um, and he asks, what does Jabba feel like? Or as Andor would say, what does Yaba feel like? <laughs> Uh, this is such a good bit back in the days of the rogue one press tour um diego luda could not do a single interview without talking about how much he loved jabba the hut and how badly he wanted to touch him and it was such a brilliant meme in the heydays heyday before things got weird with like all the the sequel discourse and everybody just couldn't behave themselves um i planted my flag in the soil back then and i'm sticking to it now jabba is slightly moist um, and Jabba feels like the skin of an uncooked chicken breast. And when you touch like his skin, there is like a bit of movement beneath it that feels like you're like sloughing skin off, but you're not. It's just the like layers of moisture. And I hope you all sit with that image and really feel the bumps and the slidey slide and the slickness that is Jabba the Hutt. Yeah, that's way grosser than I had an answer for. <laughs> Um, and I really don't like touching uncooked chicken. Um, I am someone who actually puts on like gloves when I do that. Um, I don't know. I just have a weird thing with my hands where I don't like them to be dirty. I'm someone who kind of washes his hands overly much. So uh, that's a horrifying vision you've just put in my head. <laughs> oh, shit. Um, I also think that perhaps is a function of you seeing him way more as a CG character. Mm -hmm. um, whereas I spent half my life with only Return of the Jedi, um, Jabba the Hutt, yeah. and a little bit of the A New Hope uh, special edition version, but that was, you know, near the end or like the last, whatever. Yeah, yeah. But So because <laughs> the rubbery version is the Jabba the Hutt that I know, um, he feels like he'd like feel like a kickball to me. Like, you know, that very specific rubber. Do you guys have kickball yeah, in Scotland? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, but it's a very specific type of like rubbery ball. And that's the only thing I could think of when I see his skin, because mostly I don't want to think about him wet. Um, so I just try to think of dry Yaba. Um, and to me, I think that would just be the pure rubber suit that I remember from Return of the Jedi. So like a kickball would be my answer. I think that's a good answer. As, as good as any without getting into Cronenberg body horror. <laughs> Uh, so I have a couple quick questions for you. Um, I'll ask them in tandem, and then I think you got a couple. Um, so just very simple. Uh, what was your favorite episode? And then separate question, what was your favorite moment of this first season? Um, my favorite episode was One Way Out. Um, it was the best episode of television. I will fight to the death anyone who says it, it was not the best thing to have ever been broadcast through the airwaves. It was God's gift to mankind. And my favorite moment was, oh, there's so many. I definitely had a list of these and I was like, just pick one tumble a style. Um, my favorite moment was um, 
was Kino Loy having to say the I can't swim. Uh, and that was like such uh, it was the success of the writing of the show, the success of the everything of the show, the acting, the thesis, the message, discipline of it all sitting there and Cashin doesn't even fucking hear the line uh, before he's knocked off. Uh, and and it was just magic. Um, and and of course, Andy Sarkis delivering it with um, just stupendous capability. Um, yes. So. Uh, so, OK, so do we agree on either of those? Uh, so I think we could, okay. uh, but for the sake of podcasting, <laughs> I'm going to give different answers, but I'm going to make it so that it's basically the exact reflection of what you're saying. <laughs> so for my favorite episode, I'm going to say is episode six, the I, nice. um, I think it's, you know, I think it's, I think no way out or one way out might be better as an episode, but I think, uh, the I kind of fits more to Manu sensibilities. It's like part heist, part spy infiltration. Um, even like the little damn jump that Sinta and Val do mm. is like straight out of GoldenEye. Um, I think it just, as a piece of genre work, a little more up my alley than say a prison break. <laughs> uh, but I think both are tremendous. And I especially a lot of it is driven by the fact that the eye is beautiful to look at on television. Mm-hmm. Um, something I've said repeatedly on this podcast is that Star Wars needs to be good to look at and needs to sound good. Um, and this episode really brought both of those things to the fore. Um, so I am going to say that. And for my favorite moment, I am going to go with the ending of the eye where Skeen reveals himself as possibly being ready to ditch everyone and steal the money. Nice. It was like that perfect twist because you have this big triumphant moment uh, and like you think everything's great. You did lose Nemec and stuff, but you still kind of think, you know, mission accomplished. You knew you were going to lose probably half the team on the way. And then after all that talk about everyone having their own rebellions and it's us fighting against the Empire and we're a team and just to have Skeen kind of stick that in your heart at the end is like, we could just run away from all this. Um, it's like that perfect bitter sweetness. Um, you have the sweetness from actually playing off the height, uh, the heist rather, <laughs> and then to have um, at the very last moment to add a little sourness to all that, um, I think is perfect. And that's kind of what's happening in One Way Out with Andy Circus's I Can't Swim because you have this huge triumphant climax when he gives that speech and everyone's running and chanting One Way Out and you think this is just going to be a euphoric like joyous ending to an episode and then with three words like i can't swim all of a sudden everything like the mood changes but then you start thinking about did kino loy know this when he was giving the speech uh when he said he was a dead man already the night before was he being like i can lead a rebellion but i know i can't actually leave here Mm. um it's like it's something that makes you start rethinking everything you saw before without lessening any of it, which is a really hard thing to do um, because a lot of times people tend to undermine stuff with their later revelations and the stories they write. But these just feel like they're perfectly in sync with everything we know. Um, Something I talk about with a song of ice and fire and all the plot twists in there is that George always plays fair. He gives you all the little bits of information you need so that when there is like a red wedding or Ned Stark death, you can reread the book and be like, ah, I, you can see this coming, or at least there's evidence here. It's not just like he did something for shock value without any kind of buildup. And I felt like this show played fair with everything. Mm-hmm. Like no matter where the story went, you can come back to it and be like, okay, yeah, I see the seeds for all this stuff in place early on. Yeah. Yeah, well, so this is actually that reminds me of the uh, on my rewatch, which I only got like halfway through. But like, um, when when um Bix is talking to Brasso about Marva being sick and about how they caught Marva near the hotel, um, 
uh, and and Marva was saying there's a tunnel under the hotel and that's where the rebellion will get there. And, and Bix and Brass are a bit like, oh, yeah, of course she's saying that because she's old and a bit off a rocker. And then, of course, that is how Cash and Andor gets into Ferex, uh to come back for Marva's funeral. Uh, and that is how the rebellion gets in, in a sense. Um, and like, it's a throwaway line, but it's not. And and the, and the fact that like, um, it is all there and there's no, like, like that is how Cashin gets back into Ferex. There is no fear of hiding, like fear of spoilers or like fear of ha- having the audience figure it out um, beforehand by the information in the story. There is just, this is the story that we are telling. And if you get there before we get there, then okay, that's fine. You will still enjoy the process. Um, or if you don't get there, that's fine. But the information was there. And I think that kind of confidence has, it marks the show out and I think just makes it all the more enjoyable. Yeah, absolutely. And that was like, um, maybe getting into what we're going to talk about next, like that was something that just stuck out so hard on the rewatch. Um, it's basically Marva calling her shot um, when she says the rebellion can get in there now. Um, and knowing that Cass is going to be a major part of the rebellion, whether you want to consider him a rebel as of the time of episode 12, I don't think that's important to the conversation. Um, it's just like, it's perfect. And it feels like, cause in Marva's last words to Cass through Brasso, um, She's saying, like, I know you're going to figure it out or that you have figured out. Like, she's positive that Cass is going to be the man we see him become. Um, so her, so that works perfectly with that line as well. Like, she had no doubt in her mind that at some point Cassian's going to understand what's happening in the galaxy and that he's going to be the one doing this stuff. Whether she actually thought that Cass would be the one that break in the hotel, that really doesn't matter to me. Yeah. Um, I think thematically and from a character standpoint, it all kind of works out perfectly. Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah, so, okay. So this is this is the great segue too, because um, everybody is watching this multiple times because it's a show that deserves to be watched multiple times. What is your favorite thing that you only noticed or only really felt resonance with on rewatch? God damn it! <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's more the fact that because of Tony Gilroy's interviews, I have been. Uh, mainlining the revolutions podcast (laughs) um and it's a great podcast and i'm only i'm in the middle of season five which is the spanish american revolution but it's just like as i've listened to it i can now go back to the show and be like oh this reminds me of this thing from the haitian revolution or this from the french revolution Mm. or any of that stuff um which we'll get into specifics as we go um i think i'll call out the time grappler um just because Every time they show him, it's very specific. It's meant to be like, okay, this is how they call a workday. This is how they signal something's important happening. And knowing that in revolutionary movements, and to be fair, I knew this from the Hunchback of Notre Dame, um, ringing a bell as a call for something can be very narratively important. And how they kind of perfectly use the time grappler very sparingly, but then he's the one who's kind of the call to arms in Marva's Rebellion. Um it felt less like, oh, this is a cool Star Wars thing they're working in, like a modern day church bell with, you know, a guy who rings it called the Time Grappler um, into something kind of meaningful. So I really enjoyed how he was peppered in throughout. Nice. Um, do you have one? Um, I like I don't and I do. Um, I Like it's all the little things um, that like I think I was just so excited about seeing the show be great the first time around that, that I never like that I just didn't have kind of a moment to sit down and and really think about but like um it's the it's the relationship between Skeen and Nemec 
in the first two thirds mm, of the Valdani arc, and just seeing that, like, like I, I think Skeen is and was bad news, but I think that like relationship between them was very legitimate, and like I, I think there was like a genuine feeling of camaraderie there, um, and and I think there's a reason why Skeen waited until after they had successfully left aldani to to properly flip um and i think there's also a reason why um why you know he does make that why he does kind of reach out to cash in, in the way that he does and i think there is that kind of very human element to both of them um and and i think that was something i hadn't really paid much attention to on my first go round, and and now i'm paying more attention to it and i think it is just you know um alex lather who plays uh nemec and and uh, Evan Mossbacherak, who plays Skeen, are both like um, enormously talented actors in their own rights, um, and some of them Oscar award-winning. Um, and and it really shows in, in those moments how much thought and care is put into those characters, and that was really nice on on round two. Uh, that just reminded me, I do have a better answer for this, um, and I swear Ooh. I'm not just sucking up to you, Emily, <laughs> um, but you are literally the only person in my little Star Wars community fandom who thinks uh, Luthen has bad vibes oh. and you don't trust him um, because everyone else thinks he's pretty much the best Star Wars character ever now. <laughs> um, and I think that part might be true, but I think on rewatch, a lot, I could see a little more complexity or darkness or whatever you want to call it, or like... I'm not sure if I trust Luthen as much as I trust Saw or Cass yeah. or any of the other characters. Um, I definitely see the potential somewhere in season two where Luthen's either going to fuck up big or maybe betray what we think he's really good at. Nice. Um, I don't necessarily want him to because um, I think he's like a really dynamite character, but I was getting a little bit of, okay, I should be on the lookout for this guy where I didn't really have that on a week to week basis, but that was probably just like in love with Stellan's performance. Yeah. Um, and I really just want him to be just a solid Star Wars character in terms of like morally good, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I can definitely see the the show is written with enough complexity where I think there might there's going to be some tragedy involved with Luthen, and like good tragedy involves like your character not being wholly innocent, you know? Yeah. Like they're not supposed to be just like an up and up good guy. That's not a. Tr it's not an affecting tragedy in the same way as someone who's a little more mixed morally. And obviously he's like fueling whatever these plots and a, a liberal would probably say he's going too far with this violence, which I don't agree with, but um, I can, I just see there's something being more to loot than that. We're just waiting to find out in season two. Yeah. Well, since you've gone through revolutions, I, I can, I can say this and make this joke now, but he, he kind of has like uh Danton vibes to me. Like, like mm -hmm, he mm -hmm. seems to me the kind of guy who is going to be be with you like 90% of the time and then that last high pressure 10% is just going to shit out and make an embarrass uh, uh, you know a world historic embarrassment of himself um and probably bring down some of the weaklings with him um but he he has that vibe to me and and you're like you're right like Sans Garsgard is so enormously compelling you do want to cheer for him but I'm also because I'm obsessed with being right about everything I'm also desperate for him to fuck up badly and embarrassingly <laughs> um so okay so the the my last question is um and this is just we just all have to accept that we're all mad here um this show has a lot of banger lines. Um, do you have a favorite of the lines that are going to inevitably work their way or may maybe already have worked their way into your everyday vernacular? 
Boy, this is more like I have to pick just one. <laughs> um, so I'm just going to kind of rail off a bunch because I've already started saying thesis, please, yeah. <laughs> uh, very often or like using uh, I've made my mind in a sunless place. Uh, I like tweet it more than I actually say it, <laughs> um, but it's definitely something I think about, like because I am a Cubs fan, I have made my son or my mind in a sunless place kind of thing. Um, I don't know. I think there's also a little bit where um, I'm going to say th- like words the way that people say words. And I'm specifically thinking of Fiona Shaw Mm. Um, during her eulogy. um, I don't know what type of European white person Fiona Shaw is, (laughs) but the way she says alone, it's like alone. Yeah. She's Um, Irish. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So like every time I say the word alone now, I say alone um, (laughs) like her. And also the way she says bastards. Yeah. Like the whole second syllable being more growl than like, syllable yeah um is something i think i'm gonna say a lot uh yeah i think those are the ones that jump to mind but honestly if i had a little more time to think about it i think i could probably come up with 10 lines i'm gonna be repeating from this yeah. uh how about you oh it's i'm the only one with clarity of purpose uh that's a good one that's it that's it like i say it i probably five times a day now at work and nobody gets it because not well almost none of the people at my work have seen it they definitely just think i'm a cunt but it's too delightful not to say all the time So let's kick off our broader discussion about the season as a whole. So I'm going to start by posing this question. Is Andor Marxist? Is MasterCard a queer ally? Is this TV show my friend? Well, I don't know about that middle question about MasterCard, but yes, this TV show is my friend. And you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Andor is Marxist. Thesis, please. So as you can imagine, there's been a sort of like context collapse around the content collapse that is happening in discussing (laughs) discussing this TV series. Um, Basically, as me and Emily have kind of done through our coverage of Andor, you can tell that we're looking at this with our own socialist lenses, um, applying history we know about revolutions broadly and leftist revolutions specifically in terms of what's being depicted on this show. It is something Tony Gilroy himself has alluded to. Um, And... There's been, and from there, like the conversation just kind of got out of hand in terms of Twitter and social media, where you go from we are putting a like Marxist or socialist or leftist reading on this piece of work to people saying this work is Marxist. Um, and then people taking it an extra level. And these are like people with like 200 followers on Twitter saying, actually, this is praxis to watch, or you can learn theory from the show. Um, and it gets out of hand. So now I feel like a lot of people who are like-minded with us who have socialist or leftist politics are now kind of running away from calling this show Marxist or from applying a Marxist reading to this show. Um, and now they're just saying, oh, you know, Tony Gilroy just is really smart historically. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm going to say is, yes, I think a lot of it is we're able to apply it because he knows history so well that he's able to bring very specific details into the show, whether it's details about empire, whether it's details about working class community. Um, But I just, I think part of it is, what do I want to say here? Sorry. Um, It's just that the reading is what matters. It doesn't matter what the show actually is. It doesn't matter that Tony Gilroy gives money to Pete Buttigieg or whatever, (laughs) like, uh, Democrats that exist out there. Like, if you look at all the other analytical work I generally do, like Game of Thrones or Metal Gear Solid, 
George R.R. R. Martin is the most democratic person that's possible. I'm sure he loves Joe Biden. <laughs> um, that doesn't prevent him from writing, writing very strongly anti-imperial and anti-monarchist narratives. Um, and I think that's kind of what's happening here is uh, it's ripe for this Marxist kind of reading. And I think that's something that's generally exciting given where most of the other content is, including specifically Star Wars content, um, where everything has this very neoliberal end of history feeling to its ideology. Um, so getting something that's outside of that um, really feels refreshing. And I am okay with people being a little bit overly excited about it yeah. because I do think for the most part, the people who are excited about it in this way also do understand this is a piece of content created by the Disney Corporation. So no one is acting like this is the second coming of the manifesto, even though it literally has <laughs> a manifesto in it. Um, but I think it's okay to defend this show as Marxist or saying that I think there is a Marxist reading to this show and it's worth putting forward above everything else. Yeah. Um, before I get into further details, do you want to jump in here? Yeah. So, so I guess like my thing is, um, I, I think, uh, I think there's a lot of ways to like ask this question of, is this thing Marxist? Um, and I think like there, there's a couple, I, I think the, the kind of two most convincing arguments for me is like, one, does it take a Marxist understanding of history? I.e., is there a, a move from, from feudalism to via bourgeois revolution to, to capitalism and capitalism thenceforth into eternity? Um, and I think the show is broadly setting that up as in we see, uh, a, a sort of, um, element of move from a, what is implicitly a feudal organization um into something that is liberal democratic um and that is the history of of the the old republic and then you see this thing that is liberal democratic um collapsing in under itself and 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 attaining this sort of highest stage of capitalism which is imperialism um, and not just literal empire imperialism but like lenin's understanding of imperialism which is mm -hmm, a, a, mm -hmm. a, anyways, not not necessary to get into that but but uh, and then also seeing that there is a kind of um this this show seems to already recognize that through through an inability to kind of reckon with what these forces are um and to only uh, apply sort of piecemeal approaches to dismantling them um you end up things with uh, an outcome like the new republic collapsing so so that's one thing and i think that is a sort of marxist understanding of like the 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 engine of history and the the stages the teleological approach to history and i think by, on on that grounds like you know you could argue perhaps more accurately than not, that that's also just a Whiggish approach to history and I'm reading too far into it. Sure, fine, whatever. Um, I think the other approach that I think um, is more convincing to me is the one that you're laying out, which is you can say that things about this show are left-wing or things about this are um, amenable to Marxism. And I, and I think that is because Tony Yore is so smart about history. And I think whether he acknowledges it on a personal level or not, his narrative certainly acknowledges it. And it is when you lay out the facts of the world a certain way, um, it, it will always point to revolution being the right thing. Uh, it will always point to the end goal of communism being the right thing. Um, and, and it will always point to capitalism being something that can effectively never hold its own center and will always collapse it on itself into a fascist barbarism. Um, and when you look at the, the history of the world, um, the history of the modern world in particular. And when you think about what these, these, you know, if you imagine the history of the world as a story, what these plot beats are and what these plot facts are, um, and then, you know, uh, um, scale them down into a story like Andor, you will always end up with an argument that is left wing because you cannot look honestly at the world 
around you and lay out what the true facts of it are and come to any other conclusion. Um, whether Tony Gilroy is himself ready to hoist the red flag over the barricade uh, <laughs> remains to be seen. Um, but I think because he is smart and because he is um, has a good sense of the world, both historically, maybe less so now, um, his story can only come lead to one conclusion. And and if the conclusion that he or the this, the team ultimately come to try and write at the end is anathema to that um, that that left wing conclusion that capitalism and and the the sort of world of liberal democracy can never hold, then they will be fighting against their own story to tell that. And I think that is the strength of Andor here and now. And I think that is far more interesting to me than like people bitchly being like it's Disney, it's not left wing, or um, it's you know or people you know for the crime of being too earnest a thing that we should all kill each other for being like oh this is actual communism um i think like i like you say uh the people who are too earnest are far more interesting to me than the people who are just like eh, it's disney ergo bad ergo nothing of uh, like analytic value in this because that's stupid nonsense yeah i like what you were saying there about like the engine of change because like the manifesto, not Nemix, like properly opens with the history of all hitherto existing societies as the history of class struggle. Nice. And it really feels like everything in this first season is more class struggle than traditional Star Wars, where it's the hero's journey, which kind of feeds into like great man ideology of history. Mm -hmm. um, because what happens in the first three episodes, it's about what Ferrix does. It's like next it's a team at Aldani. Then it's the entire prison in Narkina and then back at Ferrix. Even though the show is named Andor, he is not some like singular figure who's here to save the galaxy. Everything he's done is in a context of teamwork. Um, in the first three episodes, it's just him and Luthen. Then it's a bigger like team of seven with the Aldani heist. Then it's a fucking entire prison. Then it's an entire fucking town or city or whatever you want to ca call it. Yeah. Um, so there's like nothing really here that's happening individualistically like that's very common in star wars or pretty much every other star wars story with the caveat that i haven't seen the animated shows yeah and even then and even then <laughs> i do want to throw out a couple um just like revolutions things that i've been picking up as i've both been listening to uh, mike duncan's great podcast but also just reading some more history in general uh the last couple of weeks um so there's a book by Moses Hess called <laughs> The European Triarchy. Um, and this was written, I think, in the early 1800s, uh, probably maybe closer to the mid 1800s. But he was basically talking about um, how there's kind of three working class or like revolutionary kind of frames of mind emerging in like France, Germany and England at the time and how like England is where the social conditions were taking place because that was really the first European country to industrialize the way we think of the modern industry um, with factories and like tenant buildings and all that stuff. Um, over in France, there was kind of like the political revolution with the French Revolution and then everything that came after. And then in Germany was kind of the philosophical branch of like this social awakening. <laughs> um, that's where a lot of the big uh, philosophers that we are familiar with who kind of forwarded, you know, kind of socialist theory, Marx, Engels, all that stuff. Um, and I really like how the breakdown of political, social, and philosophical can be applied to the show because you have 
um, kind of the political realm of quote unquote revolution being handled by like the Mon Mothma storyline, because she's the one who's actually involved in politics and part of the Senate. Um, you kind of have the social component is kind of where Cass is, where Ferrix is, uh, where Aldani is. Um, and then you have Luthen who gets to be the philosopher. Um, he gets, he can be a philosoph. He is the one who gets to have these long speeches. Um, he kind of stands alone, but he is kind of like the rhetorical vanguard of the show. <laughs> um, so I really like how um, they're kind of depicting all the different parts of this kind of like expanding social consciousness through this same kind of uh, vector that Moses Hess was talking about in his book, European Triarchy. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great point. I have to, I have to pump the brakes on, on myself here because I, I, I am most familiar with Moses Hess for a very different reason. Um, several different reasons actually annoying in all ways um and uh, <laughs> uh and no it's just funny to me and i think it is it just it is just the strength of the show that like that this is a thing that is a plausible conversation to have um in a way that almost no other show ever i think uh maybe a couple star treks perhaps um would merit uh this level of kind of like um uh, casting your kind of net to the wind and, and catching what you will uh, in terms of like historical and theoretical. Um, and I'm not going to get into why I'm going to go back in time and beat the crap out of Moses Hess for his insane takes on England and also Zionism. But um, but yes, it is it is really interesting. And I, and I think there is this sort of, again, this element of understanding that like, you know, I hate the term late capitalism. I really hate the term late capitalism. I think it's a it's a faulty term uh, and it is ahistorical in the extreme. But like the 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 continual trueness and the continual sort of salience of these these like world historical narrative plot beats um means that um you know the writings of of Marx and his contemporaries, although I guess in some ways Hess kind of precedes him slightly. Uh, but Marx and his contemporaries ring true now um, in the same way that the writing of the writings of Robespierre and his contemporaries or Voltaire and his contemporaries ring true now because because there is just a cycle and it is not a a, a sort of staged out cycle. Capitalism is and remains the same, and liberal democracy is and remains effectively the same. Um, and it is a it is a shining um, uh, star on this show's record that it is able to engage with that in 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 such a sophisticated level given that it's like what 12 40 minute episodes <laughs> yeah and this is not an endorsement of moses Hess, <laughs> who i know isn't the greatest i just found that framework specifically yeah i think part of the reason that you can find or put such a marxist reading on the show is because it is engaging with all three levels of revolution like philosophical political and yep. um the working class level uh whatever you want to call it the social the practical level um so i think that's just a very useful framework for yeah. thinking about why this show succeeds in its theming it's not because it's just subtext or you can tell because it's the empire versus the rebels um they actually do the work to actually draw out all the different ways to approach the question yep um yep. which i really like yep uh and then just this is less communism and more just generally revolutionary but like a lot of what's happening in narkina and even aldani remind me of the haitian revolution um obviously there's a big big race component to the haitian revolution that uh you know i don't want to pretend doesn't matter in all this but if for people who don't know and i barely knew anything about the haitian revolution before i listened to revolutions it is the only real successful slave uprising and rebellion in modern history um, and that's what kind of puts it apart from like the bourgeois revolutions that we're more familiar with. 
Um, and one of the key components of it were that among the revolutionaries and leaders of the revolutionaries were the actual drivers themselves on these plantations in Haiti or Saint-Domingue, as it was called by the French. And I apologize for my French. I don't have any in me. Um, but uh, basically, the actual black uh, leaders of like the slave rebellions tended to be drivers who were slaves themselves and who were mostly black, um, probably exclusively black, but mostly black for sure. Um, and they were the ones, even though they were slaves, they were the ones that had to kind of lead the, the you know, the field hands into um, actual battle and into organizing and calling together meetings and um, kind of putting everything together. And that's kind of what happens with Kino in uh, Narkina prison, because um, he is a prisoner, even though he's the prison screw, I would think in the prison terminology, he is still just another prisoner and he's just the one in charge. Um, and then he necessarily almost has to be the leader like Cass is the one who's like you have to do this you have to be the one people know who you are um even in his big rousing speech when he says my name is Kino Loy um they cut to a bunch of other actors like the night shift guy on uh table five two um because they know his name they know who he is he's kind of a known quantity um and he's the one who kind of organizes around it he's the one who says we have to put our heads together and figure this out um I really like that detail and you get some of the rhetoric of the anti-abolitionists, the people who believe slavery should go on or that we should re-enslave um, the slaves that are rising up in ha Haiti. Um, you get a lot of the same dialogue in the discussion of the Aldani people, um, specifically hmm. between that colonel who comes and visits, um, the one who was like too fat for his belt, as you were <laughs> describing earlier, um, the way they talk about the Aldani as being stupid and submissive and not knowing any better is pretty much how Everyone has always talked about slaves in the modern era, especially coming out of the Atlantic Passage. Um, so it's just, again, another very important detail in bringing this reading to life. Yes. Yeah. And I think this is it, right? Like, this is this is the this is the reason the story works. I mean, it's not the reason the story works. It's the reason the story sings is because it, the devil is in the details here. And, and I think, um, you know... Uh, cryons, chirons, fuck, we, we got corrected for this and then I immediately forgot it. Um, whatever, I don't speak Greek. I'm anti-Greek. This is a pro-Latin podcast. Uh, I'm not, <laughs> holy shit, I just realized that I'm in, no, I'm no longer in the European Union. I can go back to being racist against the Greeks. Up the Latins. Um, the, um, the, the, the Chiron chat, Chiron, I don't know, chat, the words on the screen describing where people are. And um, we talked about that in a lot of the, uh, in, in the Rings of Power and how just fucking nightmarish that was because it was such a sign of the writers not trusting uh their audience and also not trusting that they'd created anything like visually or structurally or narratively coherent enough to stand on its own two legs without the sort of external um meta uh support um and then if you look at andor i think every planet gets a title tag once and that's it um and we get a date tag once in the very first episode and that's it and then Everything else about this makes the story come to life and hold on its own. And, and that is just rote competence. That is just a competent piece of filmmaking. But but it sings in this because um because in in Chandrilla, um with the Chandrillans, we have a sort of semi-feudal um uh organization that exists and and the issues of um, wealth and 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 marriage are intimately connected, but also potentially flipped because it appears there is an extent to which this might be a, a somewhat matriarchal society, or at least a slightly more egalitarian, but through sort of more feudalistic uh, uh, like 
um, uh, vectors. Um, and then you look at Ferrix and Ferrix is, is you could never confuse the, the indigence and, and the poverty or the industrialism of Ferrix for the indigence or the seediness of Primor. And you could never confuse either of those for the under, uh, the, the sort of undercity of Coruscant that we do in fact see. And you certainly can confuse it for Aldani. And yet through the color work, you know, all of the, there's a galactic underclass in the show and they all have the same color palette and you can never confuse their costumes for one another. The Aldani are clearly, uh, they are Aldani and the people on Ferrix are clearly the people on Ferrix and they're distinct from the people on Primor um, who are distinct from the, the sort of working class schlubs of Coruscant. Um, they they all are tethered together by this color palette and and yet they are all visually distinct from one another so we get this sort of underlying almost not subliminal not fully subliminal but, but nice subliminal sort of sense that there is something linking these people something linking these people across space and time and culture and language barrier and and this that and the other sort of level of of, of separation um and and yet there is something that that is unavoidably unavoidably um true of all of these people and and that is the level of detail that this show is working at because it is so confident in itself and because it is so solid. Um, and, and that having that level of detail means that um, it means that this story is all the richer and it also invites more interesting conversation. We aren't talking about who the fuck like made a gun in this show and what the like type of gun is. And I'm not having to sit here scratching my fucking eyes out. Cause I have to think about whether like this, like change to the like metal alloy of star Wars mithril, like it actually means anything for page 62 of appendix F of the Lord of the Rings. Like we're sitting here talking about whether or not like it is more analogous to the Haitian revolution or like Italian reunification or the French revolution or the Haitian revolution. And that is a far more interesting and, and like, um, artistically and narratively interesting conversation. And, and that exists and is possible because, because the detail work is there and because it exists and is allowed to breathe in this show. Yeah, and honestly, just Tony Gilroy saying the words Palestine in an interview. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I don't care about the rest. I don't care where his political donations go. I mean, I do care. Um, you know, I have lots of thoughts about rich people and where they put their money. But like, <laughs> for as immaterial as it is to hear a Hollywood showrunner say the words Palestine as an example that, you know, inspired the work they're doing and not in a like a Wonder Woman Gal Gadot yeah, kind of way. Yeah. Um, like it, it is honestly refreshing. I'm not going to pretend it is necessarily like material or revolutionary or will matter or will do anything in the long run, but that is just refreshing. It is something that we don't see enough of, um, especially as literally everything else coming out of Hollywood has to be DOD approved. Um, it's nice to just get a little bit of pushback. And again, I'm not really upset with people who are like a little overly excited about no. that. Um, I think it's definitely all right. Yes. Absolutely. And and I don't think there's a show on TV right now that merits a little over earnestness than this one. So I definitely made you sign off on our previous discussion there um, with my insane is and or Marxist takes. So why don't you direct the conversation? What topic do you want to hit next? <laughs> um, okay, so this is the this is the thing that I think I've been really, really, really excited about um, for a, basically since the show kicked off. Um, but this show thinks quite sincerely um, about what a diverse cast of characters looks like and what that means for a narrative. Um, and and then in so doing, it doesn't really stop there and, and kind of go job done. Um, 
this is a really, really diverse cast. Um, and and um, to say nothing of the fact that it is led by a, a, a Hispanic man, a Mexican man, no less, um, in an age in which um, we are not good to Hispanic men and certainly not to Mexican men. That like that in itself is a kind of tidy little success um, it, for a representation politics, which I think are bullshit anyways. But then the fact that there is every other sort of level, you know, we have almost gender parity. I would say the kind of most interesting woman in this show so far is uh, a, like a, a South Asian woman. Again, not a really heard of thing unless you are literally in fucking Bollywood. Um, and, and like there is a there is a there is a sincerity to the thought about what it means to be a woman. And what it means for all of these sort of individual and distinct um, um, histories to come together. Um, and, and, and so, you know, Fiona Shaw is Irish um, and um, Fiona Shaw is an Irish lesbian icon, um, but she's Irish. And Ireland, uh, for anybody who isn't aware, uh, has had kind of a rough uh, century or three. Um, and it has not ever really been a great time to be in Ireland from Ireland or Irish um, on the world stage. Um, and rather than trying to run from that or whether, rather than trying to say, look, the Irish, they're just like us. Tony Gower went, so what about the IRA? <laughs> and what does <laughs> the history of the IRA do to this story? And what can we do about like this anti-colonial struggle? Um, and how can we bring the, the sort of texture and, and, and history of the struggle into the story that we're telling. And lo and behold, you get the setup in uh, for the, the Ferrex escape and the first arc of the show. Um, or, you know, the banging on the, the metal that is straight out of Belfast. Um, or you get um, or, or you get the sort of more fascinating conversations around um, uh, around prison uprisings and whether you bring morality into that. And, and, and what does it mean when you no longer talk in terms of morality? And, and given that morality is an inherently white supremacist thing, what does it mean when you take the question of morality out of a discussion of whether or not prisoners deserve rights or whether prisons should exist at all? And when you take that question of morality and say it no longer matters whether or not you want to grade these prisoners off of a white supremacist understanding of morality, these people do not deserve to be prisoners regardless. What does that say about the show's thinking about diversity and, and how people fit as building blocks into a wider story? And then there's, of course, you know, things like Dedra, where it's, you know, as God, my heart sings every time I think about it. But like, you know, Dedra is a woman amongst men, but she's still fucking fascist. Um, and that makes her pathetic. And that makes her a disgrace. And that makes her an embarrassment. Um, and there is no sort of, oh, but, you know, women are inherently morally better and actually it's really sad and a huge tragedy that Dedra Miro is a is a fascist and also a woman it is no she is a woman and she is a fascist and fascists should all be shot dead so guess what's coming for her and and I think that is the real kind of um light of this show is that it is able to do all of the things that liberals have been trying to do in Hollywood for years but because liberals don't actually fucking believe in anti-racism and they don't fucking believe in in um, in feminism and, and they don't actually believe in any of the things they profess to believe in They've been incapable of putting together anything that actually looks like a hashtag success win for representation politics. But Tony Gilroy, a six-year-old white man from Brooklyn, was able to walk in and be like, uh, we're going to do this and we're going to write women characters, white women characters, um, South Asian women characters, old women, middle-aged women, and, the, and, 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 and men, Hispanic men and black men and, and, and characters from all sorts of so social cleavages that are going to feel 
good and respectable characters, not with the caveat of for a black character or for a woman character, but because they are good quality characters who contribute something to the overall value and narrative of the show. And and that is the that is the really like the the sort of pièce de résistance of of this show. Absolutely. I agree with everything and I hope I just don't end up repeating the exact same things, but let's start with uh Dedra um because I think they really do a good job of how they like plot her character through the season because they set her up. She's added in episode four. It's like hard to remember that she isn't even there God, for the first three episodes. Um, and they set up like her, like I would say local obstacles, like the men in her immediate vicinity, whether it's Blevin or Partagas as like things she has to overcome. She obviously develops a relationship with Partagas over the course of the season, but it's very clearly like, kind of a win when she actually convinces her team um like yeah we need to focus on this this is a real thing Andor's is a real problem this is how we get access we have to pay closer attention to ferrix like and you are supposed to feel not elated per se but you're supposed to like yeah hell yeah fuck you blevin and all that stuff when she has her little win in episode five or six or seven whenever it is but what the show does well is from there, it zooms out immediately. So you see what she's winning in the context of. Because from there, she's the literal next thing she's doing is torturing Bix. Like immediately she has her big white woman feminist win <laughs> and she goes and tortures a brown woman. Yep. Like it is not a mistake by that. And the season ends with her being a pathetic fucking worm yeah. crawling on the ground. And she needs the other most pathetic yes. worm in the show to come <laughs> save her. Like, so it clearly shows like, yeah, you were cheer. You might have been cheering her win on a personal level, a level five episodes ago. But we want you to remember this is what she's winning at. Yes, and this is what she's actually good for. Like, if they could have very easily, or a lesser showrunner could have like reordered that sequence, or her big win comes at the end of the season. So you're like kind of on board, and then you're thinking, oh, is she an antihero? Is she going to turn good? Or um, do we at least sympathize with her? And no, none of that. Yeah, they give you a little glimpse of it early just so they can specifically close the door on that and say, no, don't even think about sympathizing yep. with this woman. She is the fucking worst. Yes. And I th think that spreads broader into all the middle-aged white women in this show are like imperial or they're like Mon Mothma and Val. Yep. So they're like rich kids that are tied to the political apparatus. Um, not all the middle-aged white women, but I would just say like the leads, because I think that those three characters are basically in the main cast um, in terms of how I would break out the cast. Um, Mon Mothma is very much working with the Imperial levers of power, um, something that Tay Colma calls her on like in his first appearance. Um, and Val, we learn, is a spoiled rich girl herself. And I'm not I'm not trying to knock them down a peg, even though I kind of am, but it's like, it's very clear where the white, the middle-aged white woman, the able-bodied white women fit into this story, yep. um, specifically because the other white woman is Fiona Shaw and she's both elderly and she's um, not completely physically able. She walks with a cane um, and she's just sick as we find out generally. So I like how, they don't even have to like highlight race or gender in this. Um, very early on, I think it is episode four or five where Partagas talks about why Dedra is there. Um, and it very much sounds like, oh, we should have a woman here yeah. kind of thing, or we should have another woman here. But they're never talking about how you're a woman and you have to try harder to do what a man does, or you have to give 130% to his 100% or his 80% or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, none of that stuff, but it's all left unspoken, but it doesn't prevent it from coming through. Yep. Um, and from there, I kind of want to pivot to race a little bit um, because 
starting with Andor, like you said, it's not just that he's a Mexican brown man who's a lead, but that they call out that he has dark features specifically. Um, So it's not like that they are colorblind in this universe. His very first description when Cyril's hunting him down is dark features. So that tells us there is a component without necessarily hitting you over the head with it um and that also that he keeps his accent yes um, like his natural accent he's not forced to britishify or americanify or make something that's easier for dumb white people to listen to and i apologize to our dumb white listeners that are out there <laughs> uh, but it's not it's not curating your product against this lowest common denominator or this kind of four quadrants bullshit in terms of how you market your quality. It is, this is who this guy is and he's going to play him as he is, um, you know, as Diego Luna is, which I really appreciate. Yeah. Um, and there are, or sorry, do you want to get into no, something no, no, here no. first? Keep going. Um, I also want to call out just like the general racial diversity, like Ferrix has a lot of people of color, uh, Selman and Wilman Pock, um, Bix herself. Um, and then there are some people of color in the Imperials, which, you know, sometimes I can go back and forth with. I think Kenobi was really bad with this. Um, but I think this show is great because um, they're very few in comparison to the number of white people. And they're very rarely in positions of command. Um, a lot, a couple of the ones that we meet, uh, Terramin and Lieutenant Gorn are both actually defectors. And we actually hear what happens with Gorn where he fell in love with the local and they killed her for it. And he's basically been plotting his, um, you know, escape route. And even when the Sarge or the Colonel who's there tells him he'll hang for this, he's like, yeah, I should hang for this. I feel like fucking shit. Like it is very honest with it. Um, so even like those little things or Blevin, who is the young black man who's in the ISB, you can tell that part of Gaz is playing him and Dedra off each other yeah. because it is a, the young person of color, the young woman in a room full of predominantly old pasty white men. Yeah. Um, and he's playing them off each other because it is kind of like, well, we can have one of you be okay. Um, the other one of you is really here just to be a filler and like fill a quota. Um, so it's like, even in these very minor casting decisions, they know what they're doing and they make the script reflect that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think it's also this thing where like, um, it's funny because this is actually probably the most insane thing I will ever say on this podcast, which is a really high bar to clear. But I, I think the reason this succeeds is because the show treats gender and race and ability in the same way that it treats Star Wars. And, and there's Ooh. like, like all, all the other Star Wars iterations that we've had in the the disney era or the post prequels era um treat both the fact of there being star wars and then the fact of there having to contend with the issue of women and black people as a challenge um and and as a challenge in the way of like this is kind of a drag on our story and really we're only doing this because we have to do this and in our ideal world we would go back to a place where you know star wars would just be something that is inherent and it would all just be white men and that wouldn't really be challenging um this show does not treat um the show didn't look at the issue of star wars and it didn't look at the issue of 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 black people black and brown people and women and disabled people as a a way of lessening the 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 sort of overall quality of the product they looked at it as a way of adding to the story um and and if they had cast a man to play dedra miro 
I don't think we would have lost the sort of core point of the the empire is fucked and and the empire is so fucked it doesn't even realize it's fucked. Um, and we probably wouldn't have lost the tension of um, you know Dedra versus the world uh, or Dedra versus the rest of the ISB because no part of that tension actually hinges on the fact of her being a woman. But there is this added depth and dimension to her story because she is a woman. So without that womanhood being there, that question of womanhood being there, it would not be necessarily a lesser show, but because it is there, it is a better show. And it's the same thing, right? Like there is a lot, I think, to be said about Cinta as a character, right? Like Cinta is not the one who, you know, if there is a character in this show, a woman character who has to take on like the, the sort of stereotypical South Asian girl story, which is like standing up to impossible family pressure, being forced to like being constantly hammered with questions about whether or not they're going to get married, when they're going to get married soon, if they're going to get married soon, um, and, and having to always perform to a high level it, it is actually Vel. And it's not Cinta because Cinta is just fucking rock solid and Cinta doesn't give a shit about any of this sort of niceties and she's not doing the sort of perceived docility that forms such a, 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 a crucial and fundamental part to, to stories of of brown women. Um, it's Val who is doing that. And, 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 and so we've got in this show two kind of really fascinating things, whereas it is taking the sort of the the bonuses of having these kind of factors that we as the audience, you know, we as the audience don't go into Star Wars and go, okay, well, historically, we don't know that all societies in in, in Star Wars started as hunter-gatherer societies, and we don't know that patriarchy is a thing with 10,000 years of uh, justification, and we don't know that the slave trade, the Colombian slave trade existed in the same way, and we don't know that the French existed race in the way that they did. We don't do that. We go into this, and we see a Black person, and we make the assumptions that we make about Black people, or we see a woman, and we make the assumptions that we make about women, or we see a disabled person we make those assumptions and this show knows that this show isn't fucking stupid and it knows that and so it plays with it and so it either plays with it by adding these sort of unspoken subtextual dynamics to to the narrative or it plays with it by not giving you what you want and not giving you this sort of gener intergenerational trauma that is demanded of all brown women, um, or not giving, um, you know, not giving someone like Mon Mothma um, the 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 core problem being that her husband doesn't love her enough. Um, it is it, it plays with these things, and it either uses it to its advantage. Or it uses it to undermine our, our sort of presuppositions as the audience. And, and it's the same way that it uses Star Wars, right? Because it's like, you know, we are constantly on on tenterhooks waiting for a lightsaber sh to show up. And the show is constantly not letting us have that lightsaber or not letting us have that glup shit moment. But then it's also saying, well, you can't really tell a story of this scope and scale in, uh, in 2021 New York setting. You can tell it, however, in a galaxy far, far away. And that's the added benefit. And it's not looking at it like, oh, well, because this is Star Wars, we now have to get a certain number of elements of the IP in, and that's kind of a drag. And I think that is, this is, this is the show's, you know, is an insane thing for me to say, but the show treating these things as similar and as ways to work, to improve their work rather than drags on them is, is why it is as successful as it is. I am very close to crying about that point about Cinta because you are so right. Every fucking South Asian story, um, usually definitely on the women, but even on the male side is 
kind of like that family drama. Why aren't you getting married? How yeah. my parents still ask me why I'm not married yet. <laughs> like it, and I, even though it is a real experience, it is not our only experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that it is not Cinta, but Val who kind of has to put up with that shit. And this way, Cinta can just be the rock of the series. Um, oh God, that analysis makes me so happy. And I'm going to uh, drop in here that, We've gotten a little bit of, you know, responses to our episodes, uh, whether in our Discord and email and other slacks and other places I have friends. And I, we have gotten the comment that we're too hard on Vel. Um, and I think, no. you know, I was when rewatching Andor, like, I can see where maybe less radical people will look at those Vel Sinta scenes and think, you know, Vel is like, you know, the more sympathetic one. And, you know, I get people want to have their, you know, love in their time of cholera or whatever. Um, but no. Yeah, wait, wait, hang um, on. I, like, so Val is a little rich girl who runs away from her home and her family to go do radicalism in somewhere where nobody knows her name and um, also dyes her hair blonde because we know we saw her roots change from Aldani to Coruscant again um, and is secretly scared and it is incapable of um, sublimating her emotions to the wider cause. Now tell me why I specifically might be a little hard on her as a character. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, to be honest, my upbringing is not necessarily far off from that either. I mean, we're not coming from political power or like massive generational wealth, but um, I didn't grow up necessarily wanting for anything. My parents grew up in the suburbs um, or I grew up in the suburbs and my parents were, you know, both working and we had we didn't lack for anything. You know, all our material needs were sufficiently met and then some. Um, so I'm probably closer to Vel than I am to Cinta, um, despite the whole race thing, which kind of gets back to what we we're talking about, about how these experiences are both organic, but they don't have to be like siloed into, oh, this is the experience for this type of people. And this is the experience for that type of people. Um, that is something that Star Wars is able to let us do because it doesn't have those like hard barriers or silos in terms of experience that we treat the real world as. Yeah. Um, yeah. God, I'm going to think about that Cinta Bollywood uh, stereotype for the rest of my life. So um, very much thank you for that. I love her. Um, I think she is one of the like, and I think the fact that like, it does not seem to me like it seems to me like the way the show is setting her up is Vel is the one who's in the wrong. And this is not going to be a show that is like trying to crack Cinta's hard exterior. It is not trying to make her be more feminine or trying to make her let other people in. It is Cinta is right. Vel needs to get it together. And like, there are material reasons why Cinta's got it together and Vel doesn't. And like, I, it, like, it is it, that like a narrative, even though like, even though it is not the like thing that I like, I don't like, I would like Cinta to be happy. Like, that would be a nice thing. I would love for Cinta mm-hmm. to go, mm-hmm. you know, relax under an olive tree. Um, but there is like a gender euphoria element to this in which like all of the things that I sort of expected, you know, like the fact that there is no sexual assault in the show. Like that is an- another one of these things where I'm like, I think this is the best show is some of the tensest moments. It's got some of the most fascinating women characters, um, best portrayed women characters. It's also got some of the like sort of rawest portrayals of what systemic violence looks like. And not once is there a threat of rape or sexual assault and like that has the same like euphoria triggering feeling for me um as seeing kind of Cinta just generally tell Vel to fuck off when Vel's being a bit of a nightmare um and it, it is this sort of acknowledgement that stories um about people and stories about revolution in particular can be better than what they have historically been and acknowledging that and like starting from that level of 
the stories of revolution, even Star Wars, have not been as sophisticated as they ought to be. And the audience, the audience writ large can rise to that level of sophistication um, because people are inherently capable of that level of sophisticated thought. That is what separates us from the fucking apes. Um, the show insisting that that is true and then rising to it is like uh, the angels are singing in the background. <laughs> Okay, it sounds like we're starting to lose our calm, so I'm going to drop this sound clip in right now. Oh, no. <laughs> calm. Kindness, kinship. Love. I've given up all chance at inner peace. I made my mind a sunless space. I share my dreams with ghosts. I wake up every day to an equation I wrote 15 years ago from which there's only one conclusion. I'm damned for what I do. My anger, my ego, my unwillingness to yield, my, my eagerness to fight. They set me on a path from which there's no escape. I yearn to be a savior against injustice without contemplating the cost. And by the time I look down, there's no longer any ground beneath my feet. What is my, what is my sacrifice? I'm condemned to use the tools of my enemy to defeat them. I burn my decency for someone else's future. I burn my life to make a sunrise that I know I'll never see. Now the ego that started this fight will never have a, a mirror or an audience or, or the light of gratitude. So what do I sacrifice? Everything! All right, so the next thing I kind of want to talk about is how this piece of media, this piece of Star Wars media, is in conversation with the rest of Star Wars and almost acting as an antithesis to it, um, not in a way that undermines it, but rather that questions everything we kind of take for granted, whether it's the wisdom of Star Wars or the way the galaxy is depicted. Um, because there's a lot of stuff in this that seems to fly against kind of the ethos of the Jedi and Skywalker saga version of Star, War Star Wars. Um, like there's very explicit things like Nemec's manifesto ending with remember this try, which, you know, Yoda is on notice because of that. <laughs> and I and I'm not saying that as a negative, because I think those Yoda scenes in Empire Strikes Back are some of the greatest scenes in any movie ever. Yeah. Um, there's a reason that Empire Strikes Back is magical. There's a reason Yoda is liked, even though I really don't like him in any other appearance, um, except Save the Last Jedi, maybe. Um, there's a reason those scenes work, because it is magical and it works for Luke's story. It works for what the Empire Strikes Back as a film. But I like that this piece of media that Andor isn't necessarily taking that as a like dyed in wool truth that this is how it is and this is the ethos we're working with um and you see that elsewhere with like attachment is important in this uh show like when Bix is in the hotel and Andor wants to go save her it's not like Ben Kenobi's ghost shows up and says if you go now you're sacrifice everything that she has fought for or something like that um you know, Brasso says, you know, you're going to take on a whole garrison. Well, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, like it it says attachment is important. Like his attachment to his mom is important. His attachment to his dad, which they don't let you forget, is important. Um, and then we see so much of these problems are solved or dealt with as a community, whether it's the Aldani heist or um, breaking out of Ferrix or the Narquita prison break. Um, attachment is important. Yeah. Um, it is not like you have to be this perfect like warrior monk person to exist or be a hero in Star Wars. Um, and that's just a couple of the examples I picked out. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, because I think, like, you know, there's the, the the sort of Campbellian origins of, of Star Wars that have been sort of discussed ad nauseum and aren't really worth right now, I think, retreading. But, like, there is this argument that Andor is making that almost no other part... The sequels actually did try and make it, and because um, the sequels, two out of three of the sequels were helmed by terminal incompetence, um, were never going to successfully make, but, like... Um, the power of human beings is in our power to make and maintain communities. Um, and and a war is never one person. Um, a war is never just Luke Skywalker. It's never just Ray. Um, whoever who she, whoever the fuck she is, Ray, Ray Skywalker. Now I suppose. Um, Andor says, you know, all of these people have equal weight, and all of these people are equally as important. And it, you know, in some ways, it is the argument that the the inadvertent argument that the old EU tried to make, which is that. You know, when you got 10, 20 books about Wedge Antilles, a character who only has six lines in the original trilogy, um, I think the implicit argument that that quite possibly none of the authors were even intending to make is that all of these people, by virtue of being people, have merit and worth and, and, and a seriousness to their lives and to their existence, even, yes, even though they're fictional, that is worth talking about. Now, the EU Legends is not a sophisticated body of work. It's not a sophisticated corpus. But, like, Andor <laughs> is extending that argument, which is in some ways a very Star Warsy and an also a very not Star Warsian argument that everybody is important. Um, the, the, like, like broad brush of Star Wars is that is the individuals that are important and that like this this sort of um, ab- abdication or refusal of attachment is is either the thing that you should be doing or the thing that you should not be doing. Um, Andor says it doesn't matter whether you do it or not consciously, you will always have it. And every single person has a life that is worth hearing and thinking about and knowing and that contributes to a wider thing. And and so it is both of a optimistic tradition with Star Wars and very antithetical to the sort of more marketing toys oriented version of Star Wars. Yeah, I was I'm just thinking about that remember this try and Nemec's whole manifesto and how he talks about every little act of insurrection is worthwhile. And then later in that episode when everyone thinks that Marva's funeral is going to start at 2 p.m. and then they start ringing the bells at noon. It's just like that little thing is a little defiance in the face of the empire. No one's going to write that they started her funeral. No one's probably going to write about her funeral that's not on Ferrix anyways. Yeah. Um, but I just like how all the little things in Nemec's manifesto, which is kind of flies against a lot of the stuff in other Star Wars, is like on display. It's not just something that's said, but it's something that we see like bear fruit in the show itself. Yeah. Um, and speaking of Marva's funeral... The impact of her death and then seeing her projection in the last moments, and it's not a force ghost, but it's actually, yeah, no, she's dead. She's gone from this world in any kind of material sense, Um, but then having her memory there. And I mean, compare this to that fucking Harrison Ford scene in The Rise of Skywalker, (laughs) which I'll at least give Harrison Ford credit. He seemed like he tried in that scene, Um, but it's just like the complete kind of dog shitness or how easy it is to just force ghost people in at the end. Remember Liam Neeson showed up at the end of the Kenobi series. Oh, um, Jesus you probably Christ. don't. Cause I'm pretty sure you memory hold that series, yeah. but like how useless that is. And it's also just kind of star Wars has always kind of played flimsy with death and they've all especially done it in the Disney era with like the Kenobi series specifically, where I feel like half the characters get stabbed through the gut with the lightsaber and then they all just survive. (laughs) Um, Which, you know, fair. I guess they have the technology, even though they couldn't save Padme, they were able to like save (laughs) Anakin, who was like a burning, like two fourths (laughs) of a man or whatever. Um, But it just like, it 
like you were saying, it start it stopped being about Star Wars and it just took everything as deathly serious or took it in earnest. Yeah. So when people die, they took it seriously. It's about the loss that people felt. Um, it dealt with the fact that sometimes you're not there for the lost loved ones. You're not there to see Yoda say, oh, I'm going to go die now and then disappear <laughs> under his blankets. Um <laughs> Like, nothing is convenient about death. No. Um, it d- doesn't come when you want it. It doesn't give you a chance to have closure on everything that you feel you want to have closure on. And I think sometimes Star Wars has felt, was with the, you know, the way they've handled death or with the way they've handled Force Ghosts, um, it kind of, I wouldn't say cheapens per se, because I think a lot of the Kenobi stuff works in the original trilogy. But I like that it is fundamentally different than everything else that we've seen in terms of how this piece of media reacts to death. Yeah. And I think it's also like it's treating death with the same seriousness with which it treats life. And and like um, it, there there is humor in this show. There are scenes that are funny in this show, but it is not it does not take life or itself as a joke and and that's not to say there's no there's no humor or our sort of self awareness or like uh yeah self awareness I guess is the best way of saying that about this show but like it, it it is not treating itself as a joke nobody's gonna look at the fucking screen and go they fly now because like that's not funny and that's not how the real world works and like it is it respects its audience and it respects itself enough to not do stupid shit like that and so as part of respecting the audience and respecting itself it it has to treat certain things as a given and death is a given and when you are not a fucking jedi and when the rules of the world don't apply to you and you can never be held accountable like death is the death and life are both the ultimate sort of um the 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 ultimate sort of sticks in the sand the things that you can never really truly escape and and that's quite nice and then once you take that as a given you can never escape life and you can never escape death then what do you do well you have to make the what life and death worth things worth having and doing and this show is concerned with the how do we make these things worth having and doing rather than how do we just keep circumnavigating death over and over and over until um we get our funko pop yeah, there's a great line from, I forget which, A Song of Ice and Fire book, but it's uh, men's lives have meanings, not their deaths, um, which, you know, because there's kind of a martyr complex that comes with a lot of uh, pop culture blockbuster these days, um, where if you like lay your life on the line, um, and I think there is good martyrdom, um, but I feel like there's just so much where, um, like, that's kind of what I, one of the reasons I like The Last Jedi, um, when Finn is going to do a suicide run and then Rose stops him, yeah. um, you know, we're not going to win this by just throwing ourselves into the fire. You know, we have to protect the things we love. Um, so I, I'm really all about that. So, yeah. Sorry, my cat's yelling at me. Um, <laughs> uh, the other quick, uh, like, kind of pushing against uh, Star Wars ideology. Uh, I guess that's the wrong word, but I love this line from Skeen. And this is something he says, I think, when he's about to possibly betray his team at the end of uh, the heist, um, where he says, luck, it drives the whole damn galaxy, um, which is kind of anti Ben Kenobi's, you know, in my experience, there's no such thing as luck. Yeah. Um, And I don't think, again, I don't think Skeen is trying to put two bullets in Obi-Wan Kenobi's skull. (laughs) um, Although, that would have been made a much better prequel television show than the one we got. Uh, I, I just like that 
it is taking that luck is actually a very important concept in the world. Um, there's a lot of, you know, important institutions and like the way things are and systems that we have to change. But I think we do have to acknowledge that luck is very important. Um, not everything is predestined. Um, just because you're Palpatine's clone granddaughter or whatever. Um, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this, but I like the idea that there is chaos and randomness yeah. where so much of the other Skywalker saga almost like preordained and prophecy and all that stuff. And no, this show feels like it's written in a way where things happen because shit just gets out of hand sometimes, as opposed to there's a greater force working that's going to tie everything up back together at the end. Yeah. Well, it's very human because there's there's not really divine intervention in any real sense. Like the things that go wrong go wrong because people do things that are stupid sometimes or, you know, people are not entirely rational. But also even when they are rational, their rationality will often uh, come into direct conflict with other people's rationality or other people's self-interest. And 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 the question of the show is how do you negotiate these things? Um, and um, and whether it is the rebels and, you know, Skeen and and Cash and having some very frank discussions about whether or not it's a good idea to steal all the money and fuck off um or whether it is um dedra and blevins going out one another um in 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 these isb um conference rooms it is you know humans cause problems with one another so do we turn towards a world in which we never um live in a community and we are always these ruthless individualists or do we try and make something of what we have and do we try and make our community something worth having and do we try and and and, and sort of control for the the sort of uh universal chaos that that cannot be controlled for and and star wars usually just says um people are irrational things go wrong um but when things go right it's divine intervention and the people who um succeed in times of shit going wrong shit happening are the people who are divinely preordained to to somehow survive when everybody else can yeah no i think that's excellently put so i guess the other thing is and and you know it's actually really coming to the forefront of my mind today because i read someone posted on twitter um an interview with billy zane um who you may know from either twin peaks or titanic wow i did not expect that <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> Um, but it was it was basically uh, it was the interviewer was asking Billy Zane about the the table flip scene in Titanic um, and how you know that is um, legendarily an improvised moment and Billy Zane was like it was not improvised we talked about it um, I talked about it with James Cameron um, I cleared it with um, with Kate Winslet like it was a thing that we decided on the day but there was a conversation that was had between um, all of the adults in the room and all of the sort of people who were involved in that scene as artistic collaborators about whether or not. Um, this was the right thing to do in this moment. And there was no, you know, improvising this and going off the rails at the last moment without having had a discussion, which also actually reminded me that, you know, the there's the famous thing, you know, sort of folklore, I guess, about um, Leonardo DiCaprio in, uh, in Django when he cuts his hand on the bit of glass and then smears it on... Um, on Kerry Washington's face. And and it's not actually like, a, it was not a thing where he just did it in the middle of the scene. They, as, um, as adults, as professionals, as creative collaborators, had a conversation about whether or not that was okay. And there was an element of he needed to have her consent before he did that. And and it was not just he, you know, went sicko mode and, and did that to her. And I, I think it's important to remember that. But the, the thing that kind of that got me thinking about again is the fact that I think Andor is really, really good at having its actors not just be it, you know, people who um, speak the lines of its characters. It is a show that is 
keenly aware of who it has cast and 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 allows those actors for who they are as actors to really live and breathe and shape the show. Um, and, you know, whether it is, you know, Diego Luna doing masterful work, being the lead of the show, um, who, you know, we joke about as, you know, uh, Cash and Andor, not really the protagonist, but like Diego Luna makes this show work because he has, he just oozes charisma, but he doesn't need to be a showboater. And this show would not have worked if he were 10% more in your face about anything than he is. He just stands in the corner and is beautiful and radiates um, like good vibes occasionally or sour vibes. Um, and and really sort of acts as, a, as an important foundation for the rest of the show. But Fiona Shaw being the acting powerhouse that she is and being able to evoke these really um, um, excellent sort of um, portrayals of, of, of beaten down women who will not die quietly. Um, or Andy Serkis showing up and not just being you know, creature mocap guy, being the phenomenal and incredibly talented actor with a very specific personal history on the British left that he has. And 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 the show treats its actors not as like a way to improve their SEO or to get butts and seats, or not just as people who just need to sort of speak the lines until AI can can make them redundant. The show says, who are these actors that we have and, and how do we how do we collaborate between the, the the creative team and the acting team to make this show something more? And I, and that is why that show, I, this show, I think, really, really sort of glimmers in comparison to a lot of the other shows on TV just now. Yeah, I'm thinking of Genevieve O'Reilly as well, playing oh, Mon Mothma, yes. who's been technically in this role for 20-ish years. Yeah. Um, and given that this is her big blow up, um, she could be on TikTok and Instagram like, hey, I'm popular. Yay. Let's, you know, get to know me better and stuff. But um, she approaches her character with just uh, this like deathly calm almost yeah. because she knows she's like... I think we, I mean, I haven't watched the cartoon, so, you know, forgive me, but like, I really don't have an idea of Mon Mothma other than the discourse around that she's probably like just a neoliberal shill. Yeah. Um, I know that she was head of the New Republic after the fall of the Empire. Um, she's dead by the time we get to the sequel trilogy or even Bloodlines, which I think happens a little bit before um, The Force Awakens, which is a great book, by the way, by Claudia Gray. Um, maybe the best yeah. uh, telling of the post-imperial politics of anything that we've gotten yeah. uh, so far. But um, it just like there is an actor who they've just been sitting on. And I don't think anyone thought twice about her, um, even when they brought her back for Rogue One. Yeah. Um, it's more like, oh, people will recognize this lady because of her haircut and her white gown. Yeah. Um, so it'll remind them of Revenge of the Sith and Return of the Jedi. So they'll know like, oh, here's rebellion leadership or whatever. Yeah. Um, but then to reveal herself as like one of the most capable actors right now. Yeah. Like her stuff as Mon Mothma is you know, up there with whatever other performances you want to put in the show. And she has to do it other than Diego Luna for pretty much longer than anyone since she comes in at episode four. Um, and she doesn't get these like big win moments. I don't know what her big win moments are other than telling Tay Colma that her politics might be too strong for his taste. Yeah. Like she, everything she has to do is kind of under the covers or she's under the cover. Sounds like sex, um, <laughs> you know, like under the table, um, she has to be like distraught or fraught about things or frazzled like about the Aldani heist or what Luthen's really up to. Can she bring another guy into this? 
um, what's going on with Perrin, what the fuck is going on with her daughter. <laughs> like, And then like the last conversation she has with Val, I think in episode 11, about how she's in so much trouble. Um, and like she just has to like sit there and kind of be teary-eyed. And I know like, let's say with Eowyn in the movies, we talk about how she's just like crying for no reason yeah. in like all of her scenes. But it feels like when she's breaking near the end of this season... Because she specifically charted out a path away from, say, Chandralin customs of arranged marriages, of child brides. And then that's the price of her, like, moving forward with her rebellious activities. Um, as Davos Skeldon says, you know, discomfort might be the price of what is needed to go forward. Yeah. Um, and to see her, like, thrust into that and just have to deal with it, like, sitting there by herself, hearing the raindrops against her windows that she doesn't stare out of enough. Um, as she says her to her party guests, um, it is just a genuinely powerhouse performance, and it probably isn't going to get an award. It, she might not even get nominated, but I think she is up there with Luna, with uh, Denise Gao or Denise Goff as uh, Dedra, yeah. with Stellan and Circus. Like she is just so fantastic, and I can't believe she's been in Star Wars for twenty years, yeah. and this is the first people are finding out about her. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think this is really turning the the sort of like Star uh, Star Wars for whatever it became became. And I know people like to trot out this boring, oh, it's just a marketing tool. But like Star Wars, George Lucas, when he wrote Star Wars, when he filmed the first Star Wars, like was not doing it just because he wanted to make a million dollars on or a billion dollars on toys. He was doing it because he was a guy who really liked the movies. Like he really liked the movies, not the Star Wars movies, because those didn't fucking exist yet. Cinema. And, and and he was kind of writing an ode to that. And, and as part and parcel of writing an ode to, to movies, he was he was upping the game for what movies were. And, and as part of this sort of love letter to cinema, he, he was changing the sort of creative um, parameters of, of movies. You know, things like ILM, the, the creation of ILM during, during the filming of uh, Star Wars A New Hope. You know, these are things that change the creative landscape. And... And like Andor as a narrative structure is not particularly radical. Um, it, like it's not doing anything new with TV that we haven't really seen before. But like by returning to this like genuine love for the craft of of filmmaking and and by turning back towards actually fucking directing actors, um, I can't stand the prequels and I really am increasingly unable to stand the sequels. Um, even Last Jedi, which I love and will go to bat for, because you don't get a sense that the the actors in it are actually being directed by directors who care at all about what it means to actually direct actors and who are not just sort of creative project managers for something uh basically a fucking sizzle reel for f like funko pops or whatever nonsense <laughs> like this show feels like a return to sort of form in that like the people who are involved in this are very concerned with what makes art good and what makes cinema and, and TV good and how do how is that collaborative effort between directors and actors and 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 prop masters and set designers and lighting designers what does that interplay mean for creative output and and it is a nice return because that has shades to me of a new hope and of empire and does not look at all like the sequels prequels and all the other disney nonsense yeah i think we really need to highlight just the production values across the board um not just because they're great because i also watched kenobi which had <laughs> such dog shit visuals both in terms of its special effects its use of the volume but also the costumes look like Awful. garbage um like uh reva's whatever black 
so shiny bad. suit or whatever. Like, it looks like something out of Costume City. Darth Vader's cloak looks so <laughs> fucking cheap. It just, every part of that looked bad. But that is absolutely not on display here. Like, they built, you know, a giant Rick's Road set so they could do all that stuff for Marva's funeral. And they used it quite a bit throughout the season, not just for Marva's funeral. Um, they're constantly walking down it. There's a lot of stuff going on in the background. Um, everything looks kind of worn and lived in as opposed to, say, the Tatooine of Kenobi, mm -hmm. where everything is remarkably clean and functional, despite the fact that they live on a desert planet <laughs> that should be eroding everything like at an incredible rate. Um, things like uh, Cyril tailoring his suit yes. only works if everyone else's suit looks a little beat up and loose and everything. Uh, Mon Mothma's costumes are incredible. Like all these little details, all the little props look real. Um, even uh, B, uh, B2 Emo, Ugh. like he feels like such a like tangible piece. Like he is on there. He has weight. Yeah. Um, I like that he's almost the inverse of The Force Awakens 3PO. Yeah. Because um, uh, he's, uh, if you notice, B2 Emo is all red, but he has one yellow kind of like hubcap oh, or whatever. Or like wheel encasing, <laughs> which is the opposite of 3PO's color with the red arm uh, in The Force Awakens. Ugh. Um, I kind of wanted to bring this up as how this was the inverse of other Star Wars when we were talking about that. But mm -hmm. it's just this level of craft work is just it's what makes stories. It's why I don't I respect most people's opinions. But to me, when you talk about the best Star Wars, there is no other answer other than A New Hope and Empire Strikes yeah. Back because they changed the landscape of the visual medium. They changed what it means to do craft work, to do wires on models, to use matte paintings, to do blue screen effects. Like they are so important to the way we view things. Yeah. Um, and there might be other Star Wars stories I find better or maybe hit closer to the mark for home, but they, that's what Star Wars is to me. I like to say I'm a film fan, film fan first and that I like Star Wars as movies before I like it as some kind of, lore or mythology or world building yeah um which whatever i i could take or leave lore i happen to like things that have a lot of lore to them yeah um but the lore isn't what sells it to me it's the fact that um these things forwarded what is possible on the on a tv screen on a movie screen and andor really feels like it's not necessarily paving new ground, but it pays homage to that in the way that it makes everything that's on screen beautiful. Most of all, the eye. Um, that's like cool space shit is something that should be in every Star Wars or a lightsaber ship, which probably wouldn't even be in my top 10 favorite things of the season. Yeah. Um, but it's like, that is what I love Star Wars. It's like things I've never seen before, things I've never heard about, but then the actual craft work, the costumes, the sets, the production design are all A+. And that's why I think Andor is really successful in the end. Yeah. And, and I think it's also like, it's such a nice sort of, because um, there are two things this year that have made me kind of laugh because they are such a a shot across the board to the inflating costs of production costs of, of, of movies and TV. And, and one is Andor, which was made for probably around or less than $120 million. Um, and is some of the best looking TV ever made. Uh, and compare that to the billion dollars that was sunk, wasted, set on fire <laughs> for rings of power. And like, I, I was saying from the start of rings of power, there's no way that any part of that looked like it cost even a hundred million. Um, and, and people argued with me and now I've been proved right twice over. Ha 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 ha. Um, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. Andor looks like a hundred million dollars worth for sure. And that is the quality it should be like, nobody can look at me and say that the rings of power looks 10 times the quality of Andor bullshit lying. Um, 
RRR as well was made for the mm -hmm. equivalent of 72 million US dollars and is a fucking fantastic looking movie. It is a fantastic looking movie done for a fraction of the price of any of the Marvels, any of the big juggernauts, any of the James Cameron whatevers. Um, and, and, I, and I think it is nice because it shows that when you have a clear and disciplined creative thesis for the thing that you are making, and when you have trust in the craftsmanship and the quality of craftsmanship and, and the, the, the sort of I hate to do corporate, but the synergy of, of artistic work behind a uh, behind a movie. When you have faith in those things, and and when you have a clear sense of what you are doing and why, and when you are doing it for something more than purely cynical reasons, look at what you can do, and you don't need to spend the price of uh, several militaries on it. And and it's nice to have these things kind of in the bank now because I feel like I will never again have to have the argument with people over whether or not an Amazon's The Rings of Power looks like it is worth what it costs because the answer is no, it isn't. And, and look at how good the things that actually look like a million dollars or a hundred million dollars, look at what they actually look like. Yeah, absolutely. And like, it's it's not that impressive for me when you can just pull things off because a computer can render it, um, especially because for the most part, a lot of the CGI we get in movies and TV shows like The Rings of Power look like garbage. Yeah. Um, like they, they, I don't even know what I want to say here. It's just uh, the increasing price tag on movies to make them hasn't really resulted in movies looking better. I think we've been adamant on this podcast that for the last 20 years, basically since the Lord of the Rings films, movies have been progressively kind of looking worse. Yep. Um, and that's especially blown up in the post-MCU era. Um, and it's nice just to see that they took the time to, again, build a set like Rick's Road in full, where they could have easily CGI'd it and had like two buildings um, and then have the rest be filled in with computers and then they could underpay animators and no one would have to do work and they could probably turn around a season much quicker. But they actually cared about what they were doing. Um, and that really makes the, a big difference in what we get. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Absolutely agreed. It's the care. It's the, you know, um, there is caring about things Star Wars because you care about knowing the name of every single character in Wikipedia. And then there is caring about art because there is something good and and fundamentally human about art. And I think this is the first show um, in the Star Wars repertoire um, and the first sort of thing in a very long time that cares about art for the sake of art um, rather than caring about um, winning a fucking dick measuring contest on Wikipedia. Absolutely. Uh, one last thing, just because we haven't said his name today, and I feel like we should mention him at least once in terms of the success of the show, and that is Nicholas Brattel, oh, the guy who yes. did the score for this. Um, very famous for working on the Secession uh, theme as well, or the Secession soundtrack. Um, but I just want to highlight that I've been listening to that Andor score basically on repeat since the first volume dropped. Um, for those who don't know, there's three volumes to it, basically covering each sets of four episodes that have dropped. Um, and all of it is fantastic. It's all very thematically poignant, like in terms of like how it works in the show. Um, there are tracks that sound like, you know, they could be a rave beat in the Star Wars galaxy. But then there's also tracks that remind me of like something from Pink Floyd off of like Echoes or <laughs> something like it like it spans many different kind of genres and modalities, um, but all still feels unified and just like listening to the scores, like, oh, this is Marva's funeral scene. I am going to get super emotional just listening to this while I'm out on my run. Um, it is fantastic. I think it is some of the best TV scoring I've ever heard, um, with the exception of, say, Game of Thrones, which I think was also excellent. But I think this might be even better. Mm. Um, I think it is 
it, it is just so well done. The music is so perfect. And I don't think I would be singing the praises of the show if it didn't sound as good as it did. Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing, right? Like, like Nick Brittle showing up, hearing the Ferrex band uh, do the funerary march and then building out from there what the soundscape of the galaxy is. And, and not just sort of Niamos being a club hit that is played everywhere, but what does Niamos sound like when it is played for the, the sort of Coruscanti elite in, in a Chandrillan mm-hmm. lounge? Or what does Niamo sound like when it's handled by strings for a, a sort of um, Highlands uh, guerrilla um, movement? And, and having that sense of um, looking outwards and looking at the sort of reflecti- reflection points and refractory points of, of culture and then building that into your cultural thesis, your your artistic thesis for for what you are creating is like it is just is all of these things working in perfect synchronicity um, to have a better overall artistic outcome. Um, and 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 you're right, like Nick Nick Brittle's uh, approach to this is really sort of the is the unsung hero of this show. So I think we'll probably wrap up our discussion here for today. But before we get to our outro, I want you to remember this. There will be times when the struggle seems impossible. Mm. I know this already. (laughs) Alone, unsure, dwarfed by the scale of the enemy. Remember this. Freedom is a pure idea. It occurs spontaneously and without instruction. Random acts of insurrection are occurring constantly throughout the galaxy. There are whole armies, battalions, that have no idea that they've already enlisted in the cause. Remember that the frontier of the rebellion is everywhere, and even the smallest act of insurrection pushes our lines forward. And then remember this. The Imperial need for control is so desperate because it is so unnatural. Tyranny requires constant effort. It breaks. It leaks. Authority is brittle. Oppression is the mask of fear. Remember that. And know this. The day will come when all these skirmishes and battles, these moments of defiance will have flooded the banks of the Empire's authority, and then there will be one too many. One single thing will break the siege. Remember this. Try. So now uh, we'd like to thank our $10 and $5 patrons. Uh, Just as a reminder, um, if you sign up at the $5 level, we will read off your name with a special Middle Earth name that Emily will come up for you um, on a rotating basis. And then for our $10 patrons, we will uh, read off your name every time uh, because we love you so much for giving us $10. Um, So without further ado, these are our $10 patrons. Thank you to Johnny Flores Jr., a.k.a. Lothaman of Palenka. Uh, thanks to Ed the Revelator, a.k.a. Silent Spider, the guardian of Kirith Ungol. And Aranmo Minyatar, a.k.a. Matthew Abbott. Maddie Hugh, a.k.a. Idrenor of Kolkortad. Nice. Sal Kondil, a.k.a. Cam Lewis. That's how I know I said it right for the first time. <laughs> uh, and uh, Zach Newman, a.k.a. Lakwamelme. Yeah, um, I definitely did not get that one. Oh, I did. Yep. Okay, thanks. Um, and I think we did get one new $10 patron, Jonathan DeHaan. So I just want to give you a shout out. Um, I don't know if you want a middle. I, I shouldn't say this on the podcast, but uh, until you get a Middle Earth name. Hi, Jonathan. <laughs> and then uh, to thank our $5 patrons. First, we want to take uh, 
Thank our friend Sean, a.k.a. the Rascal of Rivendell. And Elise, a.k.a. Eleonoma of Venhatola. And that closes the book on this chapter of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycatmypod on Twitter. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash mybromycatmypod, where you'll get access to special bonus content, early access to episodes, and access to our Discord community, where we are talking about Andor, the Lord of the Rings, and basically everything else under the sun. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering A Song of Ice and Fire over at Nauticast ASOIAF. And I've been Emily, also known as JR Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter, where I will be seasoning BB, not BB8, B2 Evo with a hefty dose of sunflower oil. Remember, no, no, no soap. <laughs> I thought you were going to talk about seasoning the uncooked chicken that is Jabba the Hutt. So, um, <laughs> You made it a little less gross for me, so I appreciate that. <laughs> Saying Sagrona Tima to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. Ethraglier, and Drithion, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember this. Try. Try.